Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Hello, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 178. It is a steamy day here in Brooklyn, but this episode was recorded remotely, and my guest is in San Francisco, California. But she is representing Afghanistan, and she's my first Afghan, Afghan-American guest. I'm so, so happy and honored to be able to share her story and to cover a country and a culture that hasn't been covered on the podcast before. I first found out about, oh, I should tell you her name, shouldn't I? Her name is Humaira Gilzai, and I'm sorry, Humaira, that I can't hit that uh, correct tone in my throat to pronounce your last name correctly, but I'm going to work on it. I first learned about Humaira through her blog, which is called Afghan Culture Unveiled. And I was checking out food. <laughs> I was checking out recipes. I was checking out her YouTube videos where she cooks Afghan meals with a couple of adaptations sometimes. It all looks so amazing and so delicious. There are some similarities and some things that I've had here in New York and some things that I've talked about with previous guests uh, throughout the world. So it was cool to see those similarities, and then it was cool to learn about things that I, I hadn't known about or heard about before. And so I reached out to her. She does a lot of really important work, uh, both in the blog and outside of the blog. She also works as like a cultural ambassador and educator for films and plays so that uh, the Afghan subjects in those productions are authentic and accurate and representative of Afghan culture. She's got a great video. It's only about eight minutes long. I would recommend you check it out. But she breaks down the representation of Afghans in some films and in some vlogs, and I found it really fascinating. I'm also going to recommend that on her YouTube channel, you check out this video. It's titled Pilgrimage to Mecca as a Secular Woman, where it's a longer video. It's about 30-ish minutes. Uh, but she talks about her trip to Mecca as a secular Afghan woman, and it's really, really interesting and incredible. So I would, I would recommend that you go check that out as a companion to this episode. And also as a companion, she gives some recommendations. I'll have some of those in the notes if you click on that. Uh, so if you want to further your education about Afghan food and culture uh, and history, I would really recommend that you do that. I'm really happy and glad that I was able to use this platform to promote really great aspects of Afghan culture that you may not have known about and that I didn't know about. So hope you enjoy this conversation. Please check out the show notes and you will also find a link to my Patreon account. It's a subscription-based service where you give monthly and you get some cool kickbacks. Something I'd also like to start using as, as kickbacks is uh, films and books that are either produced or written or created by my guests or mentioned by my guests. I might start doing some of those surprises for my Patreon supporters as well. But you, there's also shirts and stickers and things from around the world. So if you can't, please share the podcast with your friends, your family, uh, promote it word of mouth. If you know someone in your family you think needs an education on Afghanistan, that would be really cool. Let them know, listen to this podcast, and hopefully they will become a fan. All right, Voyagers, 
please enjoy this conversation with Humaira. First of all, thank you. Um, you are the first representative, the first Afghan representative on the podcast. So really, it's an honor to be able to share your story. So thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on your podcast. I'm actually a fan of podcasts. I listen to them constantly. Oh, great, great. I mean, I guess, you know, if I'm honest, a lot of initially what I knew of Afghanistan came through my consumption of media, uh, be it the news or, uh, you know, major motion pictures and things like that. And I guess that's sort of the point to a lot of the work that you do is to um, fix misconceptions and to, to, still, to tell the story from the Afghan lens rather than through the lens of someone else. Uh, yes. Um, and that's why I named my blog and the work I do uh, as Afghan Culture Unveiled uh, because I feel like there is so much of the Afghan people, history, uh, culture, uh, the stories being told by non-Afghans. So I feel like it's being told from one lens. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the story they're all, they're telling is always wrong, is just from one perspective. Whereas as we all know, within our lives, there are many different perspectives that comes into a situation. Um, so I spend a great deal of time uh, talking about and writing about and, and making videos about Afghan culture, Afghan food, Afghan people in a way where it's... Um, more uh, understandable, more uh, reachable for the average person who doesn't want to constantly hear about war and doesn't really know about Afghanistan's history and the little clips that they get uh, in in the media, such as, you know, Chicago's uh, more dangerous than Afghanistan. Um, they're little blips of information, but it's hard to bring it all together uh, if you're not fully immersed in it. So I tried to bring a side um, of Afghanistan, which is about its people, the food, uh, the culture, the history. Why are things the way they are in Afghanistan? Um, and that is something that I feel is not only important for non-Afghans, but it's also for important for the young Afghans who were born here, or maybe they moved here at a young age. And they have grown up uh, in the United States or in Europe or in Australia or um, in Iran or other countries. And they basically are very thirsty for learning about their Afghan culture. Uh, but the information is limited, as you have noted, you know, the access to that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll try to get into a little bit of all that. Obviously, we're talking about one of the, the longest histories <laughs> um, in the world, and so we can't get into the entire history, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best to touch on some things, and please, at any point, uh, clear up any misconceptions that I may have. But I would also imagine that there's maybe not one you know, Afghan identity, both in the terms of people tracing their family or tribal or ethnic lineage, but also if you look at somebody who is a modern-day nomad 
versus somebody who's a business owner in Kabul. Um, is that also what makes it a bit difficult in terms of identifying, you know, the the Afghan way of life or the Afghan identity? Well, um, I, I mean, I would I would answer that by saying, like, even in the United States, you know, if you were to look at the social structure here, if you like, let's say, look at it from a political structure, you're Democrat, Republican, are you a local politician? Are you a uh, state politician, are you a national? All of that sort of defines what um, your interests are, where your focus is going to be. Um, so j- just like the rest of the world, Afghanistan um, has different um, uh, people from different ethnic backgrounds. Actually, Afghanistan officially recognizes 14 different ethnicities. Uh, it has two official languages. Pashto and Dari, and um, majority of the people, I'd say 80% of the population works in the agriculture industry um, or or in agriculture. And um, although we hear a lot about the cities like Kabul and Herat and Kandahar and maybe Mazar-Sharif in the north, but those are really four four cities uh, or, or provinces one is a city, the rest are provinces. Um, so, of course, within that is going to be people who are educated, the, how uh, what their socioeconomic backgrounds are. Um, and now in Afghanistan, which didn't uh, used to be true, but now there is a whole new generation, which is like, for example, I'm an Afghan-American. There's an Afghan Australian. So we all actually bring in the cultures that we grew up in. So when I go back to Afghanistan, the way I function, move around the country uh, or the people or how I interact with them is very different than how an Afghan woman who grew up in Afghanistan would um, interact with people as opposed to an Afghan woman that grew up in Pakistan but has come. So it's a very complicated situation. However, there are some overarching history and traditions that is applicable to majority of the people. Like, for example, the Afghan New Year, Nowruz, is in March. So all, most all Afghans celebrate it. Uh, it is not recognized by the Taliban because it's not a Muslim holiday. Um, the Eid holiday after the month of fasting or after the pilgrimage to Mecca, majority of the people celebrate that. Um, so there are, I mean, each family might celebrate it differently, but that would be the case wherever you go. You know, Christmas is celebrated differently uh, by, let's say, one family in the United States who live, let's say, in New York as opposed to in the South or in California. So it's, it's just, that, that's the thing that I think people need to understand is that um, we can't tell the Afghan story all in one, one go, uh, just like you can't with any country. Um, but there are some things that are generally true, like 85% of Afghanistan is Sunni Muslim and around 15% are Shias. Um, you know, the um, literacy rate is around 34%, um, maybe like 
thirty percent for women and or or less, and more for men. So those are some overall truths that we can rely on that applies to everyone. Yeah, and there's there's a few things in there that I'm going to circle back to later. So I'll put hopefully in my mind here some pins in them. Sure. Uh, you were you born in Kabul? Yes. I was born in Kabul. Um, my father was a diplomat, and at age five, uh, actually, he got a posting to work in India. Uh, so I lived in northern uh, India in Amritsar, which is where the Sikhs uh, are. Um, that's the, the majority of the uh, population in Amritsar are Sikh, and that's where the Golden Temple is. So I had a very interesting childhood. I actually started kindergarten in India, uh, um, which uh, had its ups and downs. Um, and then we went back to Afghanistan and just after a few years, uh, the, the Russian uh, occupation uh, or, or the overthrow of the local government happened and, and there was a coup d'etat and my family uh, left Afghanistan a year later. And we had uh, basically a one-year journey um, as immigrants, uh, and we finally landed in the United States. You have a really wonderful video that I'm not going to ask you to recount. I'm going to ask people uh, go watch it, and I'll link to it in the notes for this. But it's about the pilgrimage to Mecca as a secular person. And I was wondering, uh, as you were talking about that, uh, maybe how common or uncommon it might have been to have a secular upbringing in Afghanistan. Well, uh, my father was actually um, educated in the U.S. He uh, got his master's at San Francisco State University, which is ironic because I live in San Francisco now, and he um, studied here in the 50s. And he was really a scholarly person, and he really respected all religions. Um, so we were really brought up with that um, lens of um looking at all religions in a respectful way. And when I lived in India and when I started school, it was actually, I attended a Catholic school. It was a sacred heart school. So it was run by nuns. Um, we were exempt from going to the services because my parents had a uh, petition with the school that we are Muslim and, and we weren't required to go. But at a very young age, I was exposed to, you know, um, Catholicism, to Hinduism, to Sikhs. Um, so I feel like it kind of gave me a perspective uh, that we uh, are all kind of cut from the same cloth in a way you know, over time. The different religious um, understandings are uh, basically something that's been taught, but it doesn't necessarily have to be true. Uh, so uh, I would say that I as an adult, um, identified myself as secular as opposed to when I was growing up. Uh, while I was growing up, I still felt uh, very culturally Muslim. Okay. Do you remember when the first, uh, maybe your first encounter with a movie or a film or a book uh, that you saw that you thought to yourself, hmm, something's off here? Because I remember watching uh, your, your breakdown of some films and you were like, oh, this gentleman has a clear Iranian accent. 
And, you know, for, you know, uh, for Americans to understand, it'd be like watching, we all, we all know what a thick Boston accent sounds like. And if you're watching someone who's supposed to genuinely be from Boston in a film and he has an Australian accent, you'd be like, wow, this, this is really kind of cheesy. This doesn't make sense. Um, so do you remember maybe a moment when you, you first realized that and thought that uh, there was a need for the work that you do? Uh, well, I guess I had, because I grew up in, because I lived in so many countries um, before the age 11, I, I believe uh, seven different countries, um, I was, I had built some sensibilities of cultural um, authenticity and things that really affected me. Um, I remember like when i my husband and I first got married, which wasn't as a child, obviously, it was much older, but we would see something. And, and even then, uh, you know, it wasn't even popular, uh, you know, the hashtag uh, representation matters and such. But I would be like, oh, they're using an Indian character to play an Arab and they didn't even help them use, you know, the change their accent. So I was always very sensitive and I had been, and, and my husband would be, horrified that I, in the middle of a film, I would be nudging him saying, this is the wrong clothes and such. So I have to say this was something that I think for a long time, uh, as an adult, I started recognizing. I don't know prior to that. I mean, if uh, I had the discerning skills to take things apart. Uh, however, like when I was in university and first starting to work and such, and actually my work was international marketing too. So uh, I used to work in, in tech um, and I worked in Korea and, and uh, Indonesia and Malaysia and Australia. So I had to continually be cognizant of how I interact with people, how we communicate and such. So in a way it was just part of how I thought. It was not something that like was separate from me. It was not a uh, something that I had to conjure up. Um, but I basically fell into this cultural advisory role for um, plays and, and TV and such uh, when I was asked to consult on a stage production of The Kite Runner. Um, and that was when I was like, oh, now I have a chance to actually apply all those thoughts and ideas that I had to a real life uh, creative work. So that was really the first time that I actually had the opportunity to do some work around it. And I think a, a lot of folks will recognize that title. Um, you know, I work in schools and there's a lot of schools that, that use that book in their curriculum as well. So that's really cool to yeah. hear. Um, I'm, I'm going to get, and I promise everyone listening, I'm going to get to all the really fun stuff and the food and all that. Uh, but uh, if you'll indulge me a little bit more with maybe some of the heavier questions, like this is really enlightening and fascinating to me. So I appreciate all this. Um, you know, the there's an, a national conversation <laughs> taking place right now and a movement to uh, one, ensure the, the rights of African-Americans, but to also educate and enlighten white folks as to the experience of black Americans. And a part of that is too, because 
representation hasn't always been there. Control of the narrative hasn't been there. Um, I don't know. Maybe the question more is, in a, in a post 9-11 world, the narrative is not always or often not friendly towards Afghans. I mean, I saw you in your breakdown of the films, which again is fascinating and, I, and people need to go watch that. Um, like Lone Survivor is in there. And that's a real hoorah type of movie, right? Uh, and, and I wonder like how, how pervasive or, or how present is that reality in the life of Afghan Americans and maybe Afghans in the sense that, you know, after 9-11, I, I can recall, I was in the 10th grade when that happened, and I can recall all these terrible things happening to people. And, you know, people were, were targeting Indians or, or Pakistanis or, or thinking that uh, Persians were Arab and just getting everything so wrong. Um, and, and I wonder, like, how pervasive that is in, like, the everyday life of Afghans and Afghan-Americans in the post-9-11 world. Um, well, uh, I am actually in a privileged position in the sense that I am white passing. Uh, so most people who see me um, and, and they don't know me and they don't uh, haven't shared my name, uh, in general, assume I'm Afghan. So I have to say that I have not really experienced um, many things directly except for one, which was uh, uh, two, two months after 9-11, my hu uh, husband and I were um, in San Diego airport and uh, I was with my uh, son at that time. And my husband, who's American, was actually, he had driven the car to drop it off. And at the check-in counter, at that time, I was traveling with our, our passports because I was so horrified as to what would happen to an, an Afghan like me. So I literally had my passport wherever I would go, uh, despite the fact that my husband kept saying, we won't do what we did to the Japanese, to the Afghans. But I just could not believe it. Um, so I handed my passport to the check-in counter at United Airlines and in my passport, it says I was born in Afghanistan. Literally five people like rushed towards me. And I was pregnant at that time. Me holding my two-year-old son's hand. And it, they rushed towards me as in like, what are we going to do with her? Like, she's from Afghanistan, it says. But it was the strangest uh, reaction. And they wouldn't check in my bag. Um and and I was, uh, fortunately, my husband came, they saw he's white, and then all of a sudden everything got cleared up and, and we checked in and, and it was no problem. Um, so th that was definitely one of my own personal experiences. But at the same time, while we were um, uh, right uh, shortly after 9-11, my nephew, uh, w who is much darker skin, has dark hair and such, uh, was really... Um, you know, had difficulty at school and people were confronting him. And, and um, he at one point was like, uh, by the administration used as the spokesperson of all Muslims and such, which is also a, a, another difficult thing for uh, young people to actually all of a sudden, they're not a spokesperson for themselves, but a whole nation. That's a difficult thing. Um, 
for Afghans, uh, I would say the Black Lives Matter has been um, has felt very close to our hearts because we have experienced um, trauma uh, and um, have experienced war and have experienced discrimination and such, and there's been a great amount of support. Um, I would say that um, for me, one of the things that I have been really doing soul searching is, okay, I'm a person of color, but I'm white passing. And what is my responsibility? I mean, I came here as an 11-year-old, and really, my until recently, I really was not that well-informed about um, the plight of the Black people in the United States. So where's where, where do I fall into this, you know, um, ownership and responsibility? And I think a lot of other Afghans are going through similar questions while they're facing their own um, issues and, and uh, representation of the country, as well as the upcoming withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan, that is definitely something that is uh, on the forefront of all of our thoughts as to if the Taliban uh, basically uh, is uh, is integrated as part of the Afghan government, what is that going to do to the, the advancements to the women's rights, to human rights. Um, it's, it's all questions that we ponder and worry about and write about and discuss. Yeah, the, for, I'm going to recommend that people check out an article. I think it came out just like two days ago in The Guardian of a group of artists. I think they call themselves Art Lords. And they have been doing murals on the concrete barriers outside of the green zone in Kabul. And there's a, there's a George Floyd mural and there's a connection to uh, movements within Afghanistan, I think also uh, Palestine as well. So that's sort of uh, that connection with not the exact same movement, but uh, movements that have uh, similar causes. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, actually, the art lords, uh, the founders were here in the Bay Area just a little bit before before the shutdown. So uh, they're doing really, really great work. And um, there are also other Afghan artists. There are rappers. There are uh, visual artists. There are storytellers, poets. Uh, they're all going out and really uh, uh, sharing um, their stories. They are propagating peace, uh, tolerance and such. So I'm really proud of the work that's being done in the country. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know they were from the Bay Area. That's really cool. Um, I've had numerous guests talk about food from around the world. So you mentioned certain holidays like, like Eid, uh, Ramadan, and I've had guests who've come on and said, well, this is, these are the foods that we eat. This is how we celebrate. This is what we do. You mentioned the New Year. And I really apologize throughout this episode if, if I'm mispronouncing things. Uh, but Nauruz is the new year? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. What, what is eaten specifically at that holiday if there is something specific that's eaten? And, and what is done to celebrate? Because I, I thought I saw that there's some type of uh, a like competition on horses, like some type of a sport. Uh, please enlighten me about this because this is brand new to me. 
Yeah, now Rose is a wonderful holiday. It's basically um, um, celebrated in six six to eight countries in the Central Asia, Middle East area. In the United States, it's known as the Persian New Year, but it really goes beyond Iran. There's Afghanistan, Turkmenistan. There are Zoroastrians um, who live in India. They celebrate Nowruz. And in Afghanistan, Nowruz, the word Nowruz basically means new day. So it's the beginning of the new year and everything is about renewal. So uh, the dishes that we normally serve on Nowruz is sabzi, which is an Afghan spinach. Um, that's a braised spinach that's cooked slowly, and it's served with a white rice chalao, and that is for good crop for the uh, new year. Um, there's also a seven-fruit compote drink that is made, and uh, that's called hafmiwa. And uh, it's uh, usually you make that a few days ahead of time and um, serve it on the day of Nauros. Uh People love going on picnics. They go to the game of buskashi, which is the national sport of Afghanistan, which is, um, I would describe it as polo, except you don't use a ball or sticks, uh, the um, object is to uh, take a carcass of a goat, uh, which has been um, uh, stuffed with hay and it has to weigh a certain amount. And it's basically that's put in the middle of the field and the two teams compete to take it around and then bring it back and drop it in the same spot. Um, and uh, when people go on picnics, um, it's traditional to buy fried uh, fish. Afghanistan is a land land bound country, but we do have um, fish dish, which is from river fish. So people like go to the kebab houses and they fry whole fish, wrap it in newspaper. And also there are sweets called jalebi, which is basically sugar water with a little bit of cornstarch that's fried. It's super delicious. And you eat that either by itself or with a little bit of naan. Uh, but the whole idea of Nauru's is to look forward to the new year. And as a way to prepare for Nauru's, most people um, start cleaning their house several days earlier. They take all the um, uh, heaters, um, because a lot of Afghan homes don't have centralized heating. They actually have to put a heater in. Uh, they All the dishes get cleaned. All the uh, dust is swept from everywhere, cobwebs. Uh, all the sheets are washed. I actually have a video about this um, on my channel um, where I describe this holiday, show you how to make Hafmiwa, but also I do a little tour of uh, the Little Kabul district of Northern California. It's an unofficial name we use. So you get to see a little bit about like what the Afghan life is in the diaspora. I was going to ask you um, where in the United States is the largest concentration of Afghan Americans if somebody wanted to go try some of the stuff that we're talking about. Is it California? Yes, it's actually in Northern California. There are um, 50,000 Afghans. Um, and then I would say the next probably um, 
group would be in the Virginia, D.C., um, Pennsylvania area, uh, and then in Southern California. So we've, we've kind of congregated on the different coasts, uh, but in the Bay Area, um, and the Afghans are in a, uh, uh, it was originally Fremont was considered where all Afghans are, but a lot of them have been priced out, so they have moved to the neighboring cities. But Fremont, which where the Little Kabul district is, um, has a lot of different shops and restaurants and um, services that the Afghan community still use, and they go to Fremont quite a lot because there's a agency that supports Afghan refugees, provides support to families, uh, as well as all the yummy things like buying bread and, and shopping for sweets and buying clothes and um, that are like traditionally made. Wow. Um, I, I was thinking about, I'll, I'll use my example as Vietnam. In Vietnam, if you get up early with the sun, you'll notice that the the morning cooking, especially if, it, if it's like a pho broth, which is sort of just like a, the broth kind of always stays in the pot, like it never changes over the course of, of years. But uh, it starts bubbling early in the morning, and it's often grandmothers who get that started. And throughout the day, you'll notice a lot of the, the food carts and the restaurants and even bars and, and, and some more like nefarious businesses, they're run by women. Like women are the backbone of the food economy there and the the food economy is huge. I mean, it is a reason to go to Vietnam because the food is so good. Uh, and I was wondering about Af- Afghanistan. Who's doing the cooking? Is it is it gendered? Is it is it generational? Who's in kitchens? In the kitchen, it's women um, at home. But if you are in a restaurant or let's say like the big intercontinental hotel and such. The chefs are all men, um, but we'll go back to the to the home. Um, and basically, women uh, are in charge of the food, the children, and running of the house. Um, and the men traditionally, and and I basically preface that traditionally because there are some families where the women go out and and do things. But traditionally, the men do the grocery shopping. They're the ones that, you know, bring in the food and the women um, do the cooking and organizing. And if you were to ask me, what is the one thing that's always going in an Afghan house? It would be a pot of tea. There's always tea, hot tea, brewed. Now uh, they're using really like, giant thermoses that get imported from China, but there's always tea brewing or percolating somewhere in an Afghan home. Ah, interesting. Uh, Is there, you know, uh, celebrity chefs have become quite popular. Um, Is there a, is there a, a, a growing like fine dining scene? Obviously that's always available to, or often unavailable to a lot of working class people. Um, but does that exist in Afghanistan? Um, so it, Afghanistan is more of a culture of entertaining in uh, rather than out. Um, I would say probably the restaurants are for 
the top 1% of the country. Unless if we're talking about the kebab house or the choyhana, which is basically tea house, then that's like a little uh, local uh, shop where they literally have like a limited menu of three things per day. And men go by there and they drink tea, catch up with each each other, maybe have a snack and go on. Um, So I would say most of the focus is around um, cooking at home and and dining at home. Um, There were some restaurants that uh, was quite popular, let's say, with the expat community, with um, uh, and and people were uh, coming and going. But in general, there aren't a lot of opportunities for Afghans to go out as a family, either for cultural reasons where the women don't want to be seen by other men, you know, what is the restaurant situation and such, or that it's expensive. To answer your question about the celebrity chefs, um, there is um, the Afghan media market has blown up since 2003. Like there are uh, amazing television shows. Um, 95% of Afghans have cell phones, Um, some two or three. Um, I mean, one time I saw a man, you know, walking his donkey with, you know, filled with pomegranates and he was talking on the phone, phone with someone. Um, so uh, there are cooking shows, cooking competition. There are some, a couple of celebrity shows. There's, uh, a, a one, um, that, that celebrity show is cooking, the chef is mad. There's another one where it's an Afghan woman who goes and tastes different foods, and but it's mostly kind of a home um, expose of like, what are the things that you can do? Afghans, as you can imagine, um, uh, love food mostly because entertaining and hosting is a very big part of Afghan culture. Um, So every time I have gone to Afghanistan, um, everybody and their mother has like put on a spread for me, whoever I would go meet with um, or even my relatives. Uh, And for a while, I was actually a faux vegetarian when I would go there because of health reasons. And my relatives just could not imagine feeding me food that didn't have meat because that is insulting to give a guest a dish that doesn't have meat in it. Um, so that was always fun. I would say, you know, just like make me a little bit of like or my lubia, which is uh, um, a kidney bean uh, stew or some, you know, eggplant or something but they're like but what about meat like we have to give you meat so that's always been fun i really love your your videos um your cooking videos there's some things i recognize a little bit from things i've had and then from things that i've talked about on this podcast Uh, i had a representative from pakistan and i saw one of your posts, it was a beautiful picture too. I was like, oh my God, this looks so good of the Bolani that you had posted. Um, I'm wondering, obviously, what people eat anywhere on a day-to-day basis can vary drastically. But if there was a typical anything, is it, could you run me through a typical like breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Sure. Um, 
thank you for your comments about my video. It's actually, I've been writing my blog for around seven years, um, but the videos have really um, become popular. I've only been doing them for a year. Uh, and basically I've been taking a lot of the recipes that I've had and, and made them um, the videos from it because I feel like uh, the young Afghans are more open to watching a video as opposed to reading a blog and following instructions. Uh, I would say, and this question is for an Afghan who lives in Afghanistan, right? Exactly. Okay. So in the morning you have um, tea, of course, uh, with, uh, if you come from a middle class, upper class family with a little bit of milk um, on the side, like just drink it for calcium. Um, some people put sugar, but most Afghans don't drink sugar with their tea. Uh, a couple of eggs, maybe fried eggs uh, with a piece of naan. Um, also, you are going to die when I tell you this, but laughing cow cheese is really popular. Um, and I felt they were, uh, it was being served to me because it is packaged, uh, so therefore not a health risk. But I also think it's a status. Uh, thing, the laughing cow cheese. So that was served. So some kind of cheese, maybe in the provinces, if you're a wealthy person, fresh cheese, uh, with some eggs, a piece of bread, tea. During lunch, I would say something simple, like shurwa, which is basically an Afghan soup that has um, meat, uh, kidney beans, garbanzo beans. Uh, it's made with a base of onions and um, you eat it with a piece of naan. Uh, some people would probably like here have leftovers and such, but if there's a big family where they have a tradition of eating lunch together, then they'd probably make some kind of a korma, which would be, if I were to translate it in a word that is recognizable, like a curry type of um, stewy type of a vegetable dish with a side of white rice, chalao. But dinner is a big, big meal for uh, a lot of Afghans. And there would always be some kind of rice, either a chalao, which is white rice, or a palao, which is also white rice, but it's cooked in a sauce that turns it brown. Um, and that, if it's palao, it's usually with some kind of beef, mutton, lamb, something like that. My family makes palau mostly with chicken. And then aside of the korma, again, that, that curry type of thing, some kind of a vegetable, maybe it would be um, uh, cauliflower or okra or something like that. Uh, side of naan, uh, yogurt, plain yogurt, and uh Salata is the name for salad, and the salad is usually finely chopped tomatoes, um, uh, cucumber, onions, cilantro, um, with squeezed lemon, no lettuce. Uh, but this, Afghans do eat um, based on the availability of food and what season it is. So if it is winter, then they would eat warming foods, like things that are like slow cook risotto, uh, lots of soups and things like that. Uh, summer, it's lighter and, and maybe it would be dishes that are with vegetables that are available in the summer. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there's always tea. Tea, breakfast. Tea after lunch. Tea after dinner. And when I was trying to educate myself a bit before talking to you, I saw so many people were saying that there's a, I don't know how to pronounce it, but there's a, a yogurt drink that is incredibly popular. Is it dough? Do? Dough. 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 So the G-H, it's, it's, I spell it D-O-U-G-H. Dough. Uh, the G-H sound is like uh, something that we don't have in English. So we just kind of substitute it. Uh, actually, when I w- work with actors and they have to pronounce that sound, we spend hours on, on co- I, coaching them how to wake up the muscles in the back of their throat to say the sound. Uh, like, for example, my last name is Gilzai, uh, but in English I say Gilzai. So Doh is a very interesting um, dish and it confuses a lot of uh, people in the West, because they're used to having lassi, which is sweet. It's a sweet yogurt drink. But our dough is salty. So it's made with yogurt, water, chopped cucumbers, and mint. Uh, and salt, of course. And it's basically um, much more uh, liquidy than a lassi would be. And I have to say... Um, a lot of Westerners have a confused reaction to it because they expect it to be sweet, but it's salty. Um, my brother-in-law, actually, the first time um, he met me, we met at an Afghan restaurant, and uh, I explained doh to him, and I said, you don't have to order it. I know it's kind of weird. Um, he's like, no, 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 I want to have it. So he t- took one sip, and he right away picked up his beer and drank over it. So then he would drink a, a sip of uh, dough and then a sip of his beer. I'm like, dude, that's not how it's done. Okay. But dough is actually a supper drink. And a lot of times people would have it at lunch and we believe that it brings sleep because I think it, uh, there is a physiological effect of having so much uh yogurt that you drink and it uh, basically then after lunch and having dough, everybody would take a very nice long nap. Yeah, that's pretty similar in a, in a way to, to Europe. It's, it's very, yeah. very anti-American to stop working, to get together, to eat and then to siesta. But it's, uh, the, yeah. re- the rest of the world definitely has that right. But dough, because there is um, cucumber in it, uh, and it's very refreshing. It's considered a summer drink, and we never drink it in the in the fall. Ah, okay. If so, if I were to go to, you know, an Afghan community here, like a, a little Afghan, a little Afghanistan, um, is that something that I could find, or does it have to be no. like people make it in the home? Oh, I, oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of restaurants offer it. Ah. Also, uh, there's uh, there are bottled versions of them, but they're mostly um, you know, for the Iranian diaspora. And the Iranians actually use a bubbly water. So it's fizzy and yogurty and salty, uh, whereas we just use tap water. Uh, but most Afghan restaurants, if they are... Uh, near an uh, Afghan community would serve dole. But if it is a restaurant that's like their main uh, patrons are Americans, they might not serve it. I see. 
I was wondering about... Actually, that that gives me an idea. I should probably make a post about that, write a post recipe for how to make dough. Yeah, that would be fascinating. I'm I'm actually really, really interested in trying it now. Um, I was thinking about... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. ahead. Well, you know, I, I can go anywhere in the world and... To me, it's unfortunate, but not maybe not to other folks. I can go anywhere in the world and, and find a KFC. <laughs> I remember, um, you know, obviously Germany is Germany, but I went to it, like an old walled medieval city called Nordlingen, and they, they pride themselves on trying to keep things uh, largely how they used to look. And part of that is rejecting any sort of chains, either German or international. Now, this was 14 years ago that I was there, so maybe it's different now. But I remember, like, just outside of the wall, <laughs> not far away, is a McDonald's. And, like, part of my soul just, like, gets crushed when I see that. Um, are there, you know, international or, or Western chains? Like, am I going to find a, a McDonald's in Kabul? Um So the last time I went to Afghanistan was five years ago. And Afghanistan, uh, especially Kabul, is basically on a fast track of change. So I don't know what has happened as far as um, uh, change coming into the country. Um, But what I can say is there is a KFC, there is a chain of KFCs in Afghanistan, but they're called Kabul fried chicken. Oh, no way. Kentucky fried chicken. And there is actually a big lawsuit between Kentucky fried chicken and Kabul fried chicken because they're using the name. And actually, it was maybe a few years ago that the New York Times wrote an article about the battle of KFC versus KFC (laughs) in Afghanistan. And at that time, it seemed that Kentucky fried chicken was not winning. So uh, there is... Really? That's interesting. I have to check that out. Uh, I'm curious about tourism. You know, um, I, I try to balance really promoting places and not being afraid and immersing yourself into the experience and the lives of people while also providing the balance of, hey, you have to be safe. And, you know, I live here in New York City it would be unwise to walk around at 3 a.m. with like your wallet in your hand, right? Um, and obviously that's a bit of a, like a caricature of a situation. But when you look at government's travel recommendations, like the, the U.S. has one and they'll have information about vaccines you need from the CDC, but they'll also sort of rank countries in terms of, and maybe this is in, in quotes here, but like their, their relative safety and Afghanistan's a place where the United States will say, well, travel there or don't travel there if it's non-essential travel, right? Um, but then I go on and I, I've seen you, and I apologize that this is a long point, but I've seen you uh, talk about uh, Indigo Travelers uh, vlogs from Afghanistan. And I quite like him other than his videos have like sensational titles, but uh, I quite like that he a lot of the time makes it about uh, the people that he's interviewing. And and that's exciting to me. Um, But I see him there and I'm like, wow, like what a beautiful place I would love to visit. Um, So I'm wondering about tourism and if if you think that that type of a travel recommendation from the United States 
or European countries is fair and accurate? Well, at the end of the day, I think the question is, what is your idea of travel and what do you want to get out of that travel? For example, Indigo Traveler, he actually traveled with um, an organization that had provided him bulletproof cars and he was staying at their compound. He had a lot of security with him. Um, and to me, that's not really travel. Uh, he was basically working. Uh, I don't know if you saw Drew Binsky's videos as well. He kind of went on his own. It seemed more of like uh, a regular type of travel. Um, so personally, for me as an Afghan American, uh, going to Afghanistan is not a high priority. It's actually um, something that I will not do. First, because I feel that it puts a lot of my family members in a bad position because here I'm, a, I'm an Afghan with a U.S. passport. Traveling in the country, I will stick out like a sore thumb and I would be going into my cousin's house. All their neighbors are going to wonder and such. So I feel like for me, it would put a lot of the people that are important to me in danger to host me. Um, a lot of what is happening in Afghanistan right now is attacks on the Afghan police, Afghan army, Afghan government, Afghan um, schools and such. So there isn't a movement to go after travelers or affect them. But when you are traveling, let's say in Kabul, or I think Herat is a little better, there are checkpoints on the road and, um, you know, hotels have been targeted and such. So you really have to think about like what is your purpose? Why do you want to go there at this time? And what is the risk that you're going to take? If you are going to, if you are into adventure war travel, because that is something, that is a thing, people actually go to war zones, um, then I would go to places like Northern Afghanistan, Mazar Sharif, which both Indigo Traveler and Drubinsky goes, they went to, it's quite beautiful. I would probably go um, to places that have generally been there's been less fighting like in Herat in Western Afghanistan and such. Uh, but of course, we are during the time of COVID. So it's uh, going to be hard for anybody to go anywhere. Uh, but I personally do not condone traveling to Afghanistan right now, just because it adds a lot of complexities um, that basically puts both the Afghans you interact with in uh, a bad position as well as yourself. Uh, but that's my own personal opinion. I'm sure the Afghan Travel Bureau is going to have a very different position on this. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's really a shame. I think if people are familiar at all with like, I don't know, the history of, of travel maybe in, in the States, um, there was a time during the free love era, right? When this was called like the hippie trail from uh, India across what was at one time, you know, the Silk Road in Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Iran, Iraq. These, these were places that were on the, the hippie trail that people loved to go visit uh, for a number of reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know, just in educating myself, like there's an incredibly beautiful national park, which I, I think is also in the north 
Um, a lot of people might have heard about the the Buddhas, which it's like, wow, there was there was Buddhism and there was Hinduism in Afghanistan. It's like, yeah, it's been a place with a really rich and incredible history. Um, so yeah, it's a. I understand completely what you're saying, and um, you're far more educated about well, the situation than I am. Now that there's um, there's so much unknown. For example, um, the Afghan government is trying to, you know, bring about changes and, and bring stability to the country. Uh, and the U.S. government is separately uh, negotiating directly with the Taliban and completely leaving the Afghan government out of the negotiations and whatever deals that are made with the Taliban, then the Afghan government is responsible for executing this. Um, and then in the provinces, there's, you know, high unemployment, um, uh, roads that have been half built and such. So there's just a lot of uncertainty and turmoil. And one of the things that I, I've actually traveled to 35 countries around the world. I love travel. I, uh, used to do it all, all the time. And then for a little while, when our kids were little, we didn't, but then we went back to traveling quite a lot. Um, but I feel like as a traveler, you have a responsibility to, how you affect other people. Um, and there are people who are just, you know, why well, want to go see Afghanistan? Well, that's great. But whoever you touch, whoever you come into contact with, you are, you have to be cognizant of how your presence there will affect them. Yeah, I've always talked about on here sort of the ecosystem that you enter. It's a bit of a metaphor. Um, but I would imagine, yeah, in, in a place like Afghanistan, it's even more heightened. Because when I talk about it, it's, it's you know, it's usually like you're, the environmental footprints you live, or the way you treat people, or adhering to customs and not offending people. But exactly, if you know, if people could potentially be put in like a dangerous situation because of you, that's obviously a very bad thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have a recommendation for either, a, or, or maybe there's multiple, but like a book, a film? or even like a new source that gets it right or is close to right if people, in addition to checking out your stuff, want to educate themselves more on Afghan culture? Yes. Um, I, I mean, it, it goes without saying that uh, the Kite Runner and also A Thousand Splendid Sons are runaway successes for a reason because they're beautifully written books and, and it tells a story about Afghanistan. One of the things that I always say is that every book or movie or play um, tells a story of those characters. None of these authors are making um, uh, commentary or, or telling the story of the whole country. Um, so if you are interested in Afghanistan uh, and in the political realm of it, I would suggest Ghost Wars is a really uh, by Steve Cole and, and won a Pulitzer Prize that was uh, really well done. Um, there's a, a book by Tamim Ansari um, called The Great, no, um, sorry, I forget the, uh, I'm confusing two of his books. Um one is what went wrong, but that's about the Islamic world. Um, I will get back to you about that. Um, I, I would say that um, there are uh, 
movies, um, I have uh, Charlie Wilson's War is not necessarily about Afghan culture, but it is about our involvement in Afghanistan. Um, there is an independent movie that's made by an Afghan author um, who basically produced the film. It's called The Patient Stone. And it also has a book. It was originally written as a book. It's written by an Afghan French Afghan, I should say. He grew, he basically lives in, in France and has written this book. Um, and it was originally from Afghanistan called The Patient Stone, and he also made it into a movie. And I felt like they did a really great job with uh, that movie and portrayal of Afghans by Afghans. Um, uh, there's... Um, there are quite a lot of plays about Afghanistan. And because I consult on plays, I kind of feel responsible, you know, the responsibility to share about that. Of course. Um, and I don't know when theaters will reopen again, uh, but one of the books, uh, the play is called Blood and Gifts. It's by um, a playwright, J.T. Rogers, uh, which I thought was a really insightful um, story of the U.S.'s involvement in Afghanistan. Um, also, uh, a play called Heartland, which I co-developed with the playwright. Um, the playwright is Gabriel Jason Dean, uh, and the name of the play is Heartland. Uh, and it's basically about the U.S., the CIA's involvement in uh, Afghanistan and, and basically propagating uh, or or propaganda through textbooks um, uh, to Afghan children. And, and it was produced um, uh, the past couple of years. It's five different um, theaters, and that was really well done. Of course, The Kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons have both been stage productions, but there's also going to be an opera of it um, in Seattle Opera, and hopefully, fingers crossed, in 2022, and um, I'll be working on that. So that's going to be pretty incredible. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I mean, especially now, we're all at home, so we have plenty of time to consume as much stuff that we can find online or, or in print. So I would definitely encourage people to check that stuff out. Um, I had like a, a final thought, I'm trying to articulate this correctly, because I, I also, like, I'm conscious of the fact that you mentioned earlier about uh, the young man who, who sort of became the the spokesperson for, for Afghans and Muslims. And I think that's an unfair position to be put in. So if this, if this question is, is far too um, out of reach, don't, don't feel bad about telling me like, ah, that can't be answered. But, you know, I, I see that Afghanistan is a country that has really great mineral wealth. And... Uh, that's a great thing for a country's economy in the way that the international economy and politics and really like neo-colonialism and imperialism has played out. We've seen the story in Africa over and over, especially like, like the Congo. Uh, there's a lake there and there's a lot of mineral resources that go into creating digital hardware and phones and things like that. And, you know, countries like the United States or China look for ways through loans and economic policies to gain control of those areas. 
so I think of a country like Afghanistan, and I think, well, wow, if that could generate wealth for Afghanistan and then be invested in the country, things can really, you know, really improve. Um, so I wonder, like, if if you feel hopeful for the future, um, if there are positive signs that um, things will really change for the best, um, or if it's maybe too ambiguous, because I know you, you mentioned the, the situation politically that's going on right now. Um, but I wonder if, if, if you feel hopeful for the future. I definitely feel hopeful for the future of Afghanistan if the Afghans are allowed to take control of their destiny. At this point, there's a lot of meddling um, and also um, power sharing that's being forced on the Afghan uh, people in Afghan government, which is not of their own creation or agreement. So that makes it very difficult. I am actually um, a fan of Afghanistan's current president, uh, President Ashraf Ghani. He has done, uh, he's very educated. He used to work at the World Bank. He's a graduate of Columbia University, uh, has, I believe his PhD, um, and is a very savvy technocrat. If anybody can fix a lot of Afghanistan's issues, it would be somebody who has the strategic insight of building a government, building processes and building, you know, ministries that work. Um, but it is a complex place. There's uh, 40 years of war that's been happening. So a lot of things have been dismantled. You have to raise it from the ground. Um the Chinese are already actually mining quite extensively in Afghanistan. And um, depending on who you talk to, some say the, the deals that were made are really bad. Some say the deals that were made are good. Uh, some say there's, you know, a lot of individuals that are profiteering. Uh, since I'm not in the know as far as the what exactly those agreements are, I... I'm not really sure. It's probably a little bit of everything is true. Um, so uh, that, that is something that is, is underway. Um, there's um, a whole part of Afghanistan that in, in eastern Afghanistan where it's actually near cultural heritage sites. And there are a lot of activists working on preserving those heritage sites so it doesn't get demolished just for mining and such. Um, but one of the things that I would say um, that is making me a little concerned about Afghanistan is that we um, ourselves, the whole world is currently in turmoil, right? I mean, we within our own country have so many issues. You know, how can I in my right mind ask Americans to even care about Afghanistan considering, you know, we're going through our own um Issues. So that is one thing that concerns me is that Afghanistan being the second poorest country in the world is just going to fall by the wayside as economies of all these, you know, first world countries are falling apart. Unemployment is so high. Um, what will the future look like in the United States in six months, let alone in Afghanistan? Probably not so good. Um, but what is heartening to me is there's a whole generation of very active, 
very smart, um, very um, like civically engaged Afghans, young Afghans that are speaking, they're writing op-eds, they are advocating for themselves, they're advocating for the country, and I feel that they are going to really be the ones that are going to choose which direction the country goes to. Like people like us who live in the diaspora, really like my focus is in the United States, but um, I don't have very direct influence on what happens in, in Afghanistan other than, you know, supporting my colleagues and friends. But the Afghan, young Afghans that live there are really, really uh, powerful in many ways. And I really wish them uh, good, you know, a, a good fortune to continue to stand on their feet and to determine what their future is going to be. Well, I do think that the work that you're doing is, at the very least, helping to educate people, get people interested, and to get people to care. I mean, it, it certainly did with me, and that's why I wanted to reach out to you. So, um, you know, I'll ask people, please continue your education. Go to the links and, and check out the rest of your work. But then all of the things that we mentioned, you can go check out to, to further your education. Um, so I want to say thank you so much for allowing me to use my platform to share your story and for trusting in me to share your story. Uh, really, is, it was a, a true honor to, to have you on. Thank you so much. And when you're ready to go to Afghanistan, please touch base with me. I will uh, teach you a few dari words and, and, sh and recommend places that you should go. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, last quick little point. Is dari the same as Farsi? Um, so uh, Farsi is the umbrella name. So like the word English, um, then there's American English, British English. So Dari is the dialect that's spoken in most of Afghanistan. Persian is the dialect that is spoken in Iran. And then there is um, dialect similar to Dari that's uh, spoken in like uh, Tajikistan uh, uh. and some parts of Turkmenistan. Okay, well, then I will definitely consult with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is a wrap on episode 178 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Humara. I had a great time talking to her. It's really great to know her now. And uh, I got an education. And hopefully you did as well. Thank you, Voyagers, as always, to all of you for tuning in, for sharing the podcast, for telling people about it, for giving me feedback. I appreciate all of you getting to the end of the week here. So might have one more. Uh, if not, we'll definitely have some next week. I'm working on my wows. <laughs> I know that I know that I say wow a lot, but honestly, it's genuine. That's what's going on in my goofy brain. It's just like, wow, that's incredible. But maybe that's a little weird to hear me always say that. So I'm conscious of it. Uh, I'll be working on those in the future. All right, everybody. Again, thanks so much. Please, as always, take care of each other. I will catch you next time.